Please be advised that the content in the Grave Tales podcast series is suitable for adults only. You're with Chris Adams and Helen Goltz for the Grave Tales series podcast. Today from the Grave Tales Tasmania book, the young letter writer, Sylvia MacArthur. Dying young, Sylvia MacArthur would make her mark, documenting in letters to a newspaper's children's page what life in rural Tasmania and the mining towns around the turn of the 20th century was like. It was 1912 when 15-year-old Sylvia left us. This is her story. Dear Dame, I have not written to you before, although I have been going to do so for a long time. That's how Sylvia started her first letter to the children's correspondent or the children's page in the Launceston Weekly Courier on the 11th of January 1912. And she signed off, hoping you'll think my letter fit for publishing. And so who is the Dame? The Dame? Well, it's an interesting question because it's such a weird name, Dame Durden. And I wondered as well where that came from. I found it, her reason for choosing that name right back in the very first column she wrote. Dame Durden appeared in the writings of Charles Dickens' Bleak House, which was 1853. Mm-hmm. And it was a character name when they received the keys to the household. But the editor of the Young Folks page appears to have selected the Dame Durden for reasons she explained in the July 1901 edition, which I found. <laughs> she said, Every child is, I think, acquainted with Dame Durden of fairy lore who never went anywhere or did anything without wrapping her red shawl around her shoulders and fixing her specks on her nose, also that she was famed for her stock of fairy tales. I've never heard of Dame Dern. Me either. Maybe it's just us. Yeah, it could be. (laughs) (laughs) But it was a thing then. Anyway, so she goes on to say the stories were told to her and she would share them with young readers, hence the nom de plume. But I never found out whether Dame Dern was actually a dedicated writer for the children's page or whether it was assigned to whoever needed a job that week. But the column continued for 34 years. It was available online now, and you can look back on all the kids' letters, and some of them get really quite passionate about it, saying your favourite contributor, your dearest friend, much love to you, and they really were passionate. And so these would be kids from the mining towns of places like Queenstown and Zeehan and Belfort, which we'll hear about shortly. And then I guess it stretched across the top, the northern half of Tasmania as yeah. well, taking in Scottsdale and those sorts of places. Well, yeah, exactly, because it was a Launceston-based newspaper. But I think that there's probably a lot of local newspapers in those years too. That's when papers would have been quite strong and one of the few forms of communication, I imagine. But yes, this was the major Launceston newspaper. And Dame Durden would encourage the correspondence as well. So she'd have things like a prize for, tell us about how I spent Christmas, for example. And she'd <laughs> offer things like five shillings, which was probably a reasonable amount to earn in those days for a kid. Sure was. Five bob was a lot of money. So, for example, Violet Munro wrote of the fruit ripening, the weather being windy, and her family's trip to Devonport for the new year. <laughs> Agnes O'Keefe from North Scottsdale, beautiful Scottsdale, yep. wrote of the school's Christmas tree. And Engelbert Lewis told of the wet weather and having to bring the cows in. Uh, oh. Rod Engelbert got oh. the short end of it. Hope he won the five shillings at least. (laughs) And each letter received a couple of gracious lines from Dane saying something, you know, well, that was well done or whatever the case may be. And they'd be published in the paper. Yeah. The young person could look back and see their letter and then the thanks from the Dane. 
Well, didn't you do that when you were a kid, right into the kids' section of your newspaper? No, I was more electronic, if you like. In they didn't have electronics like, when you were a kid? They had your local radio stations. Oh, all right. Yeah, that was electronic. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> it was for TV, so wow. I was, when I was a young kid, I can remember television coming in in 1956 down there. Wow. I can remember black and white TV. That's as far back as I go. <laughs> but I used to write to the Toowoomba Chronicle. Right. It was my local paper. Yep. I got into the children's section a couple of times with my little essays and one of them once was a story it was a bit of a sort of a spin now that I think of it on The Wizard of Oz okay. yeah because the headline was strange wind blew me to another planet <laughs> and I can remember my mother saying look at the size of the headline and the story was shorter but anyway it was always a buzz as a kid to see a story in there yeah, so, like, so this would have been the equivalent of back in those days in, yeah 1905 1912 around there when Sylvia was writing anyway so life was interesting for Sylvia and I feel great sympathy for her because she was a young girl who enjoyed living in a small town and then they moved to a smaller town again for her father's work and she was quite isolated there. Her mother died when she was seven. Her mother Catherine was only 27 when she died and she left four daughters and there was Florence the eldest and Sylvia, Gladys and Laurel. And William, the husband, remarried. Yeah. The new mother, Marion, who was 20, got on really well with Sylvia, which is a lovely thing. And Sylvia would call her mother. But she soon ended up with two younger brothers, Willie and Alan. So it's quite a big family. So the family went off to a new town and took up a new mining job for the father. They had been in Zeehan. And this was a move just up the road in today's terms to a place called Belfer. Yeah, so where is Balfour for those who may know Tasmania? If you know the west coast of Tassie, you go north of Queenstown and you come to Zeehan, then you go two and a bit hours drive, about 120 k's north of there in today's terms, mm. to Belfort. I read that the journey today would only take about three hours by car and a ferry trip, or six hours if you were driving from Hobart to Balfour. But in 1912, of course, there was none of those defined roads and rail to the area and deep water entry points and all the rest of it. Yep. And then you had the weather as well. So it, it took them quite a bit of time, you know, almost two weeks to get there, which seems crazy, but that's how it was. The year we're talking about is 1911, and Sylvia's now 14, and she left the only hometown she'd ever known and seen and, and her friends, and their family moved to this mining town of Balfour, where William, the father, accepted work as an engineer driver at the Murray Brothers Copper Award Mine. And copper was king. It yep. was the currency. And they arrived in the boom time. Now, it was a bit of a weird time as well. We'd just gone through a pandemic, but typhoid was a big thing then. And typhoid was no stranger to the people of Tassie. The town of Balfour had experienced the virus again just before they arrived. But by the time they got there, it was relatively safe as such. So even though there's a lot of speculation later that Sylvia died of typhoid, mm. it's not actually on her death certificate. They've arrived in their new town in the spring of 1911. And it's a bit quiet for poor old Sylvia. Well, I can imagine it. She was the only secondary school aged child in the town. Yeah, well that's right. When she went to school there, she said that basically there was no other girls in the school her age, which is a great shame. Yeah. Sylvia told Dame in a letter about their journey and she said the weather prevented us for nearly a week and Dame replied, I hope to hear from you often Sylvia. Tell me what Balfour is like, which encouraged her as you hope. Those six words inspired her to write quite a bit about the mining town, which gives us today a wonderful record of a town that no longer really exists yeah. or, or an industry. And her father was a keen photographer. In this early period, in 1912, we now have this record of what the town was like in a boom time during the copper and some great photos of it as well, which the newspaper actually published when he supplied them with Sylvia's little letters. They were very formal, weren't they? Because yeah. when the dame asked for her to do that, she replied, I shall be very pleased to comply. Yeah. Not 
okay, Dame, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, I'm onto it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So she wrote again in 1912 in February, and she described the town. The scenery close to the town is very nice. On one side, as the Franklin River wends within one mile of the eastern side, with numerous little fern gullies and glades running down towards a rugged bank of the stream. On the western side, right onto the sea, is open button grass plains. There are many wildflowers blooming amongst the heath. She described the industry in her town, and you relate to this having been a boy in a country town. She said to Dame Durden, there's one hotel, the other was burnt down two days before Christmas, a store, a butcher shop, one baker, besides the boarding houses and private buildings, a police station and a state school. Mm. And Dame Durden replied, I read your description of Balfour with a great amount of interest, Sylvia. I hope the railway will soon connect your township with Circular Head, then I assure the district will advance rapidly. Thank you, your father, on my behalf for the photographs. The editor was very pleased to receive them and they are to be reproduced in the courier. It sounded like a reasonably large town. I've been to a lot of places that were smaller. What's the country town you lived in? Hayward down in the the western district of Victoria. Did you have more than one pub, one Uh, butcher shop, one baker? I can't remember. I wasn't really pub age at that point. Yeah. But you were one of two small corner stores, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah. Your family ran. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, they did publish those photos and they credited them to Sylvia's dad. He got a little credit in the corner of the photos. And the photos are in the book. Oh, yeah, the photos are in the book and they're terrific, aren't they? Yeah. And you can find them if you go into Trove and search a bit because they did take a bit of searching because it's sort of a bit archival, this stuff. But they are there. In her next correspondence, Sylvia agreed with Dame Dern and she published that letter as well. She said, We live in hope of the Stanley Balfour Railway being completed someday so that we may have better means of transit with the largest centres of civilization, She sounds very mature for a 14-year-old girl, doesn't she? Yeah, she sure does. Anyway, she adapted to the town and the blended family. She loved the two little brothers that she had, and she was quite motherly towards them, as you can imagine. She was 14, and they were only toddlers. I like the way she talked about the differences between Zion and Belfa, and particularly on occasions of celebration like they would have had in those days, like Empire Day. What is Empire Day? Is that like king and country? Is it the Queen's birthday? Probably the closest we get now to understanding what Empire Day was would be Australia Day. It was a day that was set aside to celebrate the glories of the British Empire, of which Australia, of course, was part. What did Sylvia say happened? Well, Sylvia wrote to Dame Dern about it, and her loneliness really surfaces in this correspondence. It was 18th of July, 1912, and she said... Empire Day went off very slowly here. Even the poor school children did not have half a holiday. Not like the grand time we had at Zian last year. There we had sports all the afternoon, a fire in the evening, the elder girls handed around tea, buns, lollies and fruit. Really, I don't think I will ever forget that day. Have you been to Zian, Dame? It's a bonny place, I think. And she also wrote to Dame, I think we're going to have a dance here one night this week. That would be indeed a treat, for we only have one on average about every five months. Of course we would have more. Only there is nobody who will volunteer to play the accordion. If it were a piano, for instance, it probably would be different, but the piano which was used for dances was destroyed when the hotel was burned down at Christmas. Oh, <laughs> sad affair. When you um, lose the pub right on Christmas, oh, things are crook. I can imagine. I mean, dances and those sort of things were in a time when entertainment was self-made. Yeah. were so important, Absolutely. I can imagine. Yeah. She progresses on to January to June 1912 and she occasionally writes Dame Durden and it was pretty hard to get published because as you can imagine, there's a lot of kids writing and, you know, Dame would make a little announcement every time at the top of the page saying, thank you for all the lovely days I've received. I've read them all, I can't publish them all, but, you know, be assured I've enjoyed them and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so, um, but she did have a regulars, you know, so there was always kids who would say, you know, your favourite writer or your favourite yeah. correspondent. They were so corny. Well, it sounds like she was one of those. Yeah. And she wrote of her younger brother, Willie, who she really loved and was so terrific with children. 
He will be three in July, but he thinks himself quite a man. He can sing almost anything. She added in another correspondence, he told me to tell you he can sing Don't Go Down in the Mind, Dad. All Things Bright and Beautiful. Meet Me at the Corner, Darling. Can you imagine a three-year-old singing that? <laughs> Meet Me at the Corner, Darling. God Save the King and dozens of other songs. And Dame Durden replied, Tell Willie that he must write or dictate a letter to me. I would love to hear him sing. The thing that she wrote to the dame about, which I thought was really interesting, was that she got to go down the mine with her father. Uh, yeah. On a trip down to see what it was like underground at Belfort. Yeah, well, I thought that too. It was May 1912. She said in her letter, it was the first time I had been down a mine that I can remember. Well, I suspect she wouldn't have forgotten, but she might have been taken down as a child. I think it is a funny feeling one has while going down in a cage. Whilst I was down below, a gentleman took a flashlight photograph of us. We all looked like ghosts for our faces were so white. However, I would not like to leave Balfour without being able to say I was down a mine. Believe me to be sincerely yours, Sylvia MacArthur Balfour. And the photo is in our book, and it's her and her dad, and she's quite a young lady by then. She's 14 and or 15, and they have got the whitest faces because I think it's also dark around them, of course. Oh. I mean, you go down some of those old mines, not the big ones like Mount Isa, but the little ones like some of the old coal mines. I've been down a couple of those, and you can't understand how black black oh. is until you get to the bottom of a, a mine, you know, yeah. four k's down. That's why I said I thought it was a bit surprising that they allowed the child to go down with her father, but I guess she's mature enough. And Yeah, and I, they must have done some sort of tours, I imagine, every yeah. now and then for family. But yeah, I went down the Mount Isa mine once, and... Oh my gosh, it's a city underneath the earth. Yeah, like, I was blown away by this. As you said, that fearfulness of thinking, the blackness of it, it's unimaginable. The other one I went down was a little place called Howard, which is near Maryborough. Yeah. It's gone now, the mine, but it was so primitive that we had to duck to um, oh. going down in the little uh, cage. No, couldn't do it. Avoid being hit by bits of stick. Oh, you were aware that things weren't normal. Wow, <laughs> well, she was very brave, actually. And the other thing that came out of that was the demands on miners who were down the mines. She wrote to Dame about that as well, which she, would, she did. would have been an eye-opener for a lot of people who had no idea what happened in the mines. Yeah, she did. She Sylvia wrote of her father's work in the mines in a letter and she said to Dame Durden, My dad is working 12 hours a day now and he gets very tired, but it's a long shift, isn't it? We'll close with love to your many correspondents and also to yourself. Interesting, the Dame did not comment on that aspect of Sylvia's letter. And I suspect because many a worker was producing similar hours in 1912, that was probably quite normal. Yeah, yeah. But Sylvia's last letter to Dame Durden was published on the 3rd of October 1912. There was a concert in Balfour, and despite the poor weather, the hall was crowded and everybody was in attendance, and it was voted by the people of Balfour as the best held at Balfour up to the present, <laughs> which leaves room for future ones to take over that vote. Sylvia closed by advising the fishing season had started and sent her love to Dame Durden, and that was her last correspondence. Okay. So why was that her last conversation? Well, on the 21st of November, a month later, 1912, on page three, Dame Durden wrote the following. Readers of the page will join me in tendering deep sympathy to the soaring parents of dear little Sylvia MacArthur. Sylvia was one of the most beloved of our correspondents and all will be sadly shocked to hear of her death. Not only was a dear child a writer of interesting letters, but she frequently sent me photographs of the Balfour settlement and these have from time to time been published in the Courier. Farewell, dear little Sylvia. The father has taken you unto his loving care, but we will miss you. Following us are touching verses written by the father, our dear departed friend, signed Dame Durden. And her father was quite a poet. And she did publish the father's poem, and I won't read it, it's in our book, but there's a nice little line in it. Never more shall come to meet me, gaily tripping down the hill, 
catching hands with little Alti and her other brother, Will. <laughs> and it's a poem of that ilk. She also published a letter from Sylvia's stepmom, who Sylvia loved. And she said that Sylvia suffered a great deal of pain, but bore it all with fortitude and patience. She was known and beloved by everyone, being always the same, cheerful, smiling and happy. She was a great favourite with little children and was never seen without a child in her company. Ah, Dame, it seemed too hard to part with her, but God's will, not ours, be done. She is now at rest and free from all sorrows and pain, but has left many sorrowing hearts behind her. So that was from Balfour and the stepmother. Why did we lose Sylvia? What happened to her? Why did she die? Well, it's interesting because there's a bit of speculation that, as I mentioned earlier, that she'd had typhoid, but that's not the case. Her death certificate lists peritonitis, an infection possibly from a perforation of the abdomen. Yep. Descendants have heard of Sylvia falling while being piggybacked and thought that might have led to the injury in the first place. Well, it could have, yeah. We were really fortunate to be able to speak with Edie MacArthur from the MacArthur family, who helped us a lot with the story and the photos. Thank you, Edie. And Edie said that descendants thought Sylvia would most likely go on to be a teacher like her sisters were because she was so good with children. I felt really disappointed that she wasn't invited to perhaps help as a teacher's aide in the school. She was so much older and yeah. there was a male teacher at the time. I'm sure he could have used the help because yeah. she was quite lost. And as she said, she was as lonely at home as she was in the schoolroom. So that was a great shame. But she has a very handsome grave in the Balfour Cemetery in Alexander Street. Mind you, there's not too many in that cemetery. It was destroyed by fire at one stage. And I think there's only about three graves that are actually visible then. It was paid for by a life insurance policy of £100. And it was quite common in those years to insure the lives of young people because there was so much disease and families wanted to give their loved ones a proper burial. So what happened to Sylvia's father? Well, William MacArthur lived a long life. He died in 1940 in Launceston, aged 76. He was cremated and rests in Cara Villa Memorial Park. Yep. Her stepmother, Marion, died 30 years after William in 1970. So she was with us not that long ago, for those of us who remember the 1970s. And she was in her 80s at the time. She's also resting in Cara Villa Memorial Park in Launceston. Uh, Sylvia's siblings enjoyed longer lives. Her, her eldest sister, Florence, died age 59, Gladys age 84, her half-brother Alan age 72, Laurel, her other sister age 86, and her beloved singing brother Willie died in 1989 aged 80. Dame Durden's column kept going for years, 34 as I mentioned all up. The last issue was June 1935. It was then titled The Children's Playground by Dame Durden. (laughs) And as for the township? Yes. Well, like all those small little towns, once the industry left, so did the town. Yeah. Its boom time was 1909 to 1914, when Sylvia and her family were there, and it was home to about 300 residents then, which is a sizable little town. But by 1921, the industry was gone, and so were the residents, and that year, the census count was 46 remaining. Wow. So, if you get to the little town of Balfour, look up the cemetery, pay your respects to Sylvia. Her headstone says, in after time we'll meet her. And it's correct, they're all gone now and they're all reunited. If you've enjoyed today's episode of Grave Tales, please rate, review and subscribe by pressing the follow us button. You've been listening to a story from Grave Tales, the series, available in paperback, ebook, and select titles on audiobook. Music by Kai Engels. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram or on our website. Check out our YouTube channel as well.